Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with one of my most inspirational characters in my life, I would say, uh, Dr. Kelly Strutt. He is a major inspiration for me starting to create videos on the internet. He did the forward for the Align Method book came out six months ago or so. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's been paramount in the, my development as a body worker and as a mind-body thinker, I guess you could say. He's been instrumental in my perception of the body. So I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. We get into some pretty abstract subjects ranging from rites of passage for young people. We get into how to fix your back and your hips if you're biking a lot or sitting in chairs a lot and uh, a really fantastic conversation. I always enjoy having Kelly on. I think this is the third time we've done one of these and I hope to do many, many more. If you guys are interested in learning about how you can start opening up them sweet, sultry hips of yours that may be freezing over as a product of being stuck inside chairs ever since you were a kindergartner, we broke down a simple, fundamental video on how to start to open those guys up with some practices that everybody ought to have. Very easy to integrate into your daily life. And you can find that on alignpodcast.com slash masterclass. Created a, a simple video for y'all to get involved. And uh, I think you guys are gonna really dig it. It's also, you can find the link for that on my Instagram handle at alignpodcast. And the link for that is in the bio. Thank you guys so much for reviews on iTunes. Thank you for doing you. Thanks for grabbing the Align Method book. Thanks for reviews on Amazon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Here we go. Back to the program with one of my preferred humans in the entire world, Dr. Kelly Starrett. Welcome back to the porch. What bike Welcome you back, got back there? That is a Bianchi Vigorelli. It's like an old, it was nice like 55 years ago. Well, you know, every bike is nice 55 years ago. I had a Bianchi Veloce and it was a steel Bianchi. And I love, love, love that bike. That was like one of my favorite bikes of all time. How did it affect your spine? How was the mechanics in your bike? How do, for people that are riding bikes a lot, was that, did you ever encounter any issues physically from that? So let's go ahead and start by saying that biking is amazing. Okay. It can transform society. <laughs> I'm such a fan. It's pri my primary sport these days is I'm a mountain biker. But I will also say that human beings, it interrupts and the way that we stabilize our spine, the way we can stabilize our spine. And so you are designed to have force through the ground. You have 13 muscles that create external rotation, torsion fork force between your femur and your, between your leg and your pelvis. And what ends up happening then is that you can create a very stable pelvis off of your femur when your foot is straight and all those muscles turn on. Well, as soon as you sit down and you strap your feet into pedals, you have no longer any primary mechanism by which of stabilizing your pelvis. <laughs> and so your body says, no problem. You're now as efficient as a hummingbird on a road bike, more efficient than a hummingbird. And you can create 5,000 watts for many, many hours in this crazy position. And guess what? Your body will adapt. Your brain is like, oh, okay, well, this is what we're doing now. This is my life now. And subsequently, we see freakish amounts of dysfunction from the spine and the hips and the back and the quads comma biking is my sport and i love it so if you go in there not thinking i'm going to get hurt but hey there's going to be a cost that i just need to make sure that i spend some time in a split stance that i work on my balance that i restore my positions and mechanics then you can bike all you want and what you've seen with the trend towards modern bikes of moving towards gravel bikes which are a little bit more upright mountain bikes are very reasonable Suddenly you're seeing that we can take some of that hinge out, but our modern race bikes, I don't think the average person needs to be on a modern race bike, eating their stem, chasing that aerodynamic position. You know, and if you look at biking in Europe or every other country, the bikes look very different than the bikes that we ride. Like the bikes you cruise to store, the bikes kids ride to college and high school are like grandma cruisers from the twenties. They're very upright. They have weird handles that basically like make you look like you're like your ET kit, you know? So it's a banana cruiser. And so I think fundamentally, again, we can transform society with these things, especially the e-bike. It's about social justice. I think the biking could be easy aerobic piece that allows people with real orthopedic issues and changes to continue to explore the environment, continue to have access, 
right? It's really re that remarkable a technology, comma, it comes at a cost. Yeah. I think biking is another one of those tools that you can start to integrate into your daily life so that your whole life becomes a little bit more like fitness as opposed to being entirely committed to having your 45 minutes at the gym. Like how do we start to disperse that 45 minutes or oh, hour yes. or whatever into the rest of your life? And I think biking or walking or any of those are really helpful tools. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I know that this is where your mind is all the time. And, and, you know, I think people fail to appreciate that, you know, some of our good friends, you know, the research is that we used to walk and maybe the magic number is somewhere between six and 8,000 steps a day, yeah. which is not that much. And one of the things that we tend to talk about walking as a way of creating enough non-exercise activity load that you actually feel fatigue when you go to bed. That's why we want people to walk 10 to 12,000 steps a day, like so that you can actually go fall asleep. You actually have moved your body enough. Yeah. From a physiology, you have to load your Achilles. You have to load your feet. Your tissues will not be tissues unless they're mechanically loaded, period. That's the magic. And so most of us are underloaded during the day. And walking is egalitarian. I'm not even talking about like running. You can put a heavy backpack on and suddenly that walking becomes legit. You're loading your spine. It is the thing that makes us humans. Like we are supposed to walk around. Hmm. Now, if we go back into the deep physiology nerddom, which you know you are the, the president of, you know, we have to look at the fact that our entire lymphatic system is bootstrapped into this movement system. And your lymphatic system, for those people who don't know, is basically the sewer system of your body. It moves your waste around, old proteins that you're not using, waste products, things that can't go back into your circulation to be filtered, go through the lymphatic system. And if you don't move, you cannot decongest. And that decongestion is, is a classic Chinese term, right? Stagnation, decongestion. There's a reason why you're supposed to walk to move your organs around. There's a reason you're supposed to walk so that your muscles contract so you can dump your lymphatics. And there are a lot of problems that we see that are stasis problems where things aren't circulating. So if you look, Perry Nicholson, who I'm a huge fan of, yeah. you know, describes the body as an aquarium. And that aquarium has to have a pump. And if we start to look at ourselves as this dynamic fluid system, as described by Philip Beach and everyone else, then all of a sudden you see that, wow, walking isn't just about loading my feet or being tired enough to go to sleep. It's the key to circulating my sewage system. So if you don't want to circulate your sewage system, by all means, just be cruise around. So one of the things that's so clever about what you said is, man, I don't have to create another opportunity to work out. I just need to be what I'm supposed to be as a human animal, which is just in movement and motion all day long. And then when you can figure out ways to be clever, about integrating those practices. So that's not one more thing you have to do or one more activation or glute mobilization or some skill where you're trying to take all of your human animal concepts and put them into a 45 minute flow session in the gym. Then the gym is really a wonderful add-on tool to the things that are already working, which is you being a full human. Yeah. So what about the person who they are pumping their system, but there are some kinks expressed in various points throughout the hose. And so they're not, even though they're technically pressing on in the pump, there's still some congestion at various points. Well, I think what's, what you're seeing is, you know, you and I are both sitting on the ground right now. This yeah. is an example, right? Yeah. And sitting on the ground is a wonderful way to unkink the hose. And if you can set up your life so that you're a little bit barefoot when you're maybe just at home, that you email on the ground, sit on the ground a little bit, put your arms over your head. You just take your joints through their normal range of motion. That's cleverly why there is something called sun salutation in yoga, yeah. right? This, they figured out a long time ago, hey, you've not been moving all day, all night. Now let's just give you 10 or 15 minutes of touching some key positions. And when you start to see downward dog that way, you're like, ooh, clever. So the body, I think, is so clever and so remarkable design that if you engage in some very basic behaviors, it self-regulates, it auto-regulates. It, auto it wants to do the things it's supposed to do. That's what the plumbing is for. But most of us are going out of our way to interrupt that plumbing, interrupt that algorithm. And so if you begin to have a conversation around your soft tissue, I mean, you are a fascia, you know, you know aficionado, for lack of a better word, and have been kind of advocating for this. Well, 
you know, we start to see suddenly that this lymphatic system, this fascial system, these muscular systems, these joint systems, they're all components of the system. It's like saying I have a sewage system, but I don't, we don't believe in turns or we don't believe in pumps or warehouses or toilets. I mean, you need the whole system. Yeah. And so, you know, the problem is you can go deep nerd or deep into your tribe and say, this is the most important thing. And suddenly you can miss the fact that you're a system of systems. So when we begin to do a better job of constraining our environmental health or constraining our behaviors, then the system auto-regulates and it's the one less thing you have to just manually mess with, right? Yeah. I wonder with you, like you've been, I've already blown much smoke up your ass many times, but you've been a major inspiration in my whole worldview, the way that I communicate about all this stuff and you know the production of videos, podcasts, even the book. And so I wonder with you, like what's actively challenging in your life? Because you always seem very well put together in every interview I've ever heard. Is there anything that's like ruffling your feathers? It could be physically, oh, it yes. could be. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to talk about that. I'm so glad I thought that. So here's an example of the fact that you cannot cheat your physiology. So let's start with that idea. You cannot short circuit or cheat your physiology. We think we can. Yeah. I don't need to sleep. I only sleep five hours a night. Oh, really? Okay. Well, how'd that go for you? Well, my hair fell out and I'm overweight and I'm stressed and, you know, okay, okay. I don't make the gains. So it turns out you, you, no one can sleep five hours. You can pretend like you can, but that bill will come due. So recently, you know, our gym is in San Francisco. We have been closed since March, right? We theoretically were allowed to open up just yesterday and have four or five people in the gym at a time that's you know indoors we can't open because we have i mean that's not a gym i don't know what that is that's my garage we can't even go outside right now because of the fires in california we've been training outside with 10 people classes since june we just don't know if it's going to make it and that has been just causing a ton of stress for me why because i care about my coaches i care about my community i've had this thing for 15 years so add into the fact that we are now working at really crazy rates here at home because now we're just home and we just work, work, work. Add in the fact that I've had immediate access to my espresso machine and I was probably drinking nine cups of coffee a day, at least nine, <laughs> nine Americanos. I switched to cold brew. I feel like that's been like, it still jacks me up, but somehow I feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> let me, let me just, I'm just going to side. Uh, I go through phases where I drink a lot of coffee, right? And um, when I had two children and I was, I did this blood panel and I was sitting down with an interventional nutritionist and she was like, so it says here you have one to two cups of coffee a day. And I was like, there's no hyphen. And she was like, what? You have 12 cups of coffee a day? And I was like, well, that's, <laughs> that's three 20 ounce Americanos from Starbucks. You know, I'm, I'm up at 4.30 and coaching and I have one at like 11 and one at three. And then I go home and I'm trying to be a dad and I fly around and I was like, what do you think my plasma is made of? Caffeine. And she was like, I don't think that's good. I was like, I'm sure it's not good. Comma, this is my crutch. Like, this is what's keeping me going. This is the duct tape on the system. Yeah. So recently I ended up creating a situation. I had a, one alcoholic drink. I was hypo, super hypohydrated. We went to the sauna. We did Restrepo. We brought the air bike into the sauna. I ate a big meal and I started some reflux, some, some gastric intestinal reflux kind of was, was latent. And I'd kind of feeling a little bit, but I was like, it's fine, whatever. So big meal at night, late, all of these things, not drinking enough water during the day, being a stress case. And all of a sudden I developed intractable hiccups that lasted for 11 days. So they put me on Thorazine, couldn't break it. I did meditation, guided hypnosis. I went to acupuncture. I had to get on the Prilosec. Thorazine didn't work. Went on a horse trank level dose of gabapentin because I was hiccuping six to 10 times a minute. So I'm not talking about casual. I'm like, I was debilitated. Couldn't have a conversation. My wife was sleeping in the other room. Finally get ahead of that. I'm like, okay, what, instead of saying, whoa, 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 my body failed me. I was like, wow, what inputs was I giving in a really complicated way that was not allowing my body to do what it needed to do. So now you are seeing tea. I have maybe one cup nice. of coffee a day, one cup of coffee a day, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes, and it was really easy for me to be like, Oh, I'm not going back there. You know, I had my nose stuffed down in this hiccups and um, you know, what's it mean? Well, I'm probably drinking three to four good liters of water a day with salts. And that, and what's interesting is that I feel better and I'm more lucid and you know, this behavior change came on the end of getting my ass kicked by my own making, 
right? I want people to understand that is that it's really difficult for us to see inputs and outputs and make those connections. This was an easy one. I aggregate all those things. I threw some alcohol on top of my stomach problem. I had one drink. I'm just talking about one drink. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm buzzed off this one drink and I'm super hydrated. We did a brutal workout in the sauna where it was 210 degrees. I jumped on a podcast, still didn't have a chance to like drink anything. So I know that I lowered my defenses. I crushed myself. I found out where I could break and I broke. And when I took off those bad behaviors, what I got was, was improved clarity. I got improved functionality. And that's what I think is sometimes lost in this greater conversation that we aren't saying do these things so you can avoid hip surgery. We're saying do these things because you're actually not taking advantage of how good you can feel, how rad you can be, how nice your skin can look, how it's easier to look better naked. I mean, if you want abs, by all means, just hiccup six or eight times a minute for 11 days. I like, I was like, I'm Jack. This is great. It's like, called trauma trim. I lost 11 pounds. You know, it's like traveling I mean? with one of those little East end things on your, on your abs. Totally. No, And you know, you know, what's interesting. So for me, what, what was really great was once again, I was like, okay, you know, I, I still am mortal, even though I do a lot of these things, right. I was engaged in behaviors that weren't sustainable. And I think, I think that's, one of the things that's really important for people to hear is that we don't necessarily have to be perfect all the time. You just can't be imperfect for long, long periods of time, right? This, yeah. this isn't an overnight. I mean, of course I can buffer. I'm like, you're like, Kelly, we're drinking 10 espressos at the World Espresso Championship. I'm like, I'm in. Let's do this. But I can't do that day after day after day after day, right? I wonder uh, the relationship to, to, to tribe and having people be able to come together and, and sweat and chant in the form of like grunting or hooting or, you know, yeah. one, two, three, go, whatever, like that integrates people together, it makes them feel like they are beyond themselves, you know, so we, we can feel very lonely stuck inside of this skin bag by ourselves. And then all we have is this two dimensional screen to look at. When we start to move in unison or speak in unison, marching, you know, working out together, dancing together, it really, it's like a, it's, it's like a spiritual religious practice in a sense, quite literally in the fact that that's what happens in, in many spiritual religious practices. And I think that I wonder the effect on humanity and yourself and your gym and the people that you see in your world of um, that being kind of like blocked out of our lives. Is that something that you notice? I know that was a rambling way of, of describing No, I think that's a really perfect way. So, you know, I think um, if I quote Perry Nicholson again, you know, he put up a post recently that just said, hey, let's view the brain as a social organ, that a yeah. brain doesn't function well unless it's around other brains. Correct. So, that, you know, that's just like, hey, one battery doesn't charge the, the run the machine. You need three batteries. And so fundamentally right now, you know, we will see ripples through the behavior of kids being afraid to make eye contact or be, you know, like hugging and physical contact and proximity is, that's us, that's humans. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if we know the true cost of, of our inaction or inability to manage or regulate this, but something you bring up that's so important is this co-regulation, which is, I think, the uh, right term for it, is the shared experience you know, when we opened the gym back up to outside, we, everyone had to, got to bring their dumbbells back, right? That we loaned every piece of equipment that we had in the gym out to our members during the closure cool. and just to keep them intact, right? We're like, we're, we're, your, we're your people. And they came in and they were like, you know, I thought this gym, and we had really like hardcore athletes come in and say, I thought this gym was about being strong and powerful and in position, but it's not those things at all. It's about being seen. It's about being in a community. It's about a few minutes of the day where I practice and I get coached and I get unconditional positive regard. And people were like, really, I mean, they were teary-eyed as they're like handing back their kettlebells. Like, thank you. I can't wait to be back. And so, um, you know, to your point, you know, in this thing, I think one of the things that's, you know, we've done with our girls is we were like, okay, there's got to be a couple families that we spend time with. They're in our bubble. And if they get sick, we're going to get sick. And the cost of that or the risk that we're taking. And we're, we're not going to raves and, you know, taking over at risk, but the pressure on my daughters to be alone with their parents for five months and in this crucial time wasn't good enough. And so we made decisions around saying, Hey, look, we're still going to, we're, we're not doing that. And then going hugging grandma, you know, we still haven't touched 
you know, Juliet's mother lives a mile from us, and we still have not touched her since February or March, right? We have not hugged it for her. We wear masks, we still social distance, why? Because they're in a higher risk population. But that doesn't mean that we can't use our brains and say, okay, this is a this is a risk that we're willing to take with this other family because it's going to help us to remain intact. And and again, however you feel about this thing, about what's going on to the bottom, to you, the, the, the central instance of your question is, what does it mean to be a human being? Or are we doing that yes or no? And as I said before, I, I can be subhuman or engage in behaviors that are hard on a human being for a while, but I can't make those persistent behaviors. So, you know, yes, you can go off into the woods. I mean, we were watching some naked and afraid style thing, like on, you know, the outdoor channel. And like these people wouldn't live in Alaska for 50 or 60 days, it's like lone survivor basically. And this guy at 50 days was turned to the camera. And he's like, you know, I would come home and I would not be with my wife and I'd get on the internet and I'm so sorry. And he's basically having this mea culpa because he had enough time being away from his family to realize, you know, he wasn't taking advantage of it. And that's where we are right now. And, and we're going to at some point have to change our society and our customs around the ways that we interact, the ways we make contact, the ways we, you know, the shared experience. And, and this is hard for you because you can't go to your spin class. Imagine what it's like for my 15-year-old daughter. And she does, isn't an existential crisis. There's no food shortage. There's no, you know, she still has school. You know, I mean, the number of homeless kids who don't have, I mean, right now, we aren't seeing the real cost of a lot of these things that we're, we're engaged in right now. It's, yeah. it's this devastating. Yeah. With kind of sort of sidetracking, something I was interested in talking to you about is the value of having some form of rite of passage as a young person. And I know with your history with kayaking and I didn't realize that you went to CU. That was what that's that's makes sense that you're all enamored Crunchy. with Rolf. Well, no, you're enamored with rolfing. I'm like, why does he know so much about rolfing? It's like I went to freaking Boulder, Colorado. And it's weird how his girlfriend in college Went through the rolfing school and he went to the rolfing school, right? I, went, that was I, I have been in the world center of roll. I've been there right, and right. walked around this hall. I have been processed two times. Yeah, right. So, so, so within that, the reason I'm asking is I heard you speaking in, in another interview in regards to just the value of having those experiences of, of you know, being poor and hiking miles in order to get to the place and stuffing Taco Bell burritos in your pockets. And <laughs> so you, so those are things that it, it seems on maybe on the outside, like, Oh, that's not really an optimal situation. But then I think the other side of that is having access to too many, too much wealth and too much abundance and all that with it kind of atrophies the system a bit. You know, so I think that, the thing that stood out with what you said with that was it was like I have it written down actually. You said something like um, "break yourself against your your fear," and that was something that I mm. was doing a lot when I was living in Colorado. I didn't realize until after the fact. When I go to Colorado now, I see all these mountains, and I realize I look at them. I was like, "Oh, every day for me it was a challenge of getting up a mountain," and I was always terrified. I was always scared, and the reason that I was doing it was to kind of show myself that I'm like man enough. You know, and at the time I didn't see that, but at the, but looking back, I'm like, oh, that's what I was doing. I was trying to 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 kind of push that boundary of fear and kind of have this like rite of passage because I never really experienced that growing up. And I think in, in modern Western culture, we don't really have any succinct rite of passage that exists. Well, you know, what you just brought up was, uh, and I don't even know if anyone wants to hear this, but um, you know, what we're really trying to understand is that society, tribe, process, transition. Is just as much about being human. That's that's now saying instead of saying this mechanical movement, we're saying it's the thing that our brains need to understand who we are and, and the way we, we interact in the world. So we created this little tribe of men and women who all kayaked together, did scary things. We just and it was very different. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not pining for the old days because our our equipment sucked. We didn't have cell phones. It was very dangerous. We had friends who died, not when we were with them, but you know, we would run a river and we would call someone when we got done, right? That, that was all we could do. And when we were in there, it was just us and we had to get in. And, and if someone lost a boat or broke a paddle, you had, to, you had to deal with those consequences. So you had to be really self-reliant. What's interesting that you're on the break of, because that really, you know, we took risk over and over and over again and well-calculated risk. We weren't yahoos. We, we didn't. We, we understood in really clearly that 
what we were doing had real, real consequences if we were stupid. But what's been interesting is, you know, that was, I didn't drink, I didn't have a sip of alcohol until I was 22. I have five generations of alcoholics in my family. My father was estranged because he was an alcoholic. He was my grad, my dad was like the great Santini. He was the captain of the football team at college and flew F4s in the Air Force and was just now in retrospect trying to self-medicate. My great grandfather was a first generation Irish cop, you know, in Seattle. So, I mean, one of 13 kids from County Cork left the, left Ireland to, you know, not be broke. So lots and lots of men in this family trying to figure out how to self-soothe and auto-regulate. That's what that is, right? So mm-hmm. behaviors get what, so if I'm my dad or I'm an Irish cop or my grandfather, alcohol was the way that they could make themselves feel better. That was the way that they tried to make themselves feel better. Clearly it's what, it was a great, it did a lot of damage. And I figured out early on, I was lucky enough to see that, boy, that's not working for them and it scared the shit out of me. And so I didn't drink at all. Instead, I scared the crap out of myself all the time. And I discovered exercise. And exercise was a behavior that was just a self-soothing mechanism where I could feel better. But then this other thing where I had to use my fitness and my wits and be really afraid. And then I had to go do the thing. You know, like you, we roll up and it's a big class five rapid and you know, we decided who's going to go first and we run, we run safety and someone's with a rope at the pinch point and hoping that, you know, and then it's your turn. And when you push off from the rock and go, you know, the only time you're not above the rapid, the only time when you're not afraid is when you're in the rapid because there's no time. It, it basically, um, Stephen Kotler wrote about this in rise of the Superman called transient hypofrontality, which is in those moments where you are so committed to a behavior that has real consequences, you will get into flow state because you have a choice. You're either going to snap into flow state or you're going to have a horrible swim and get pinned or something bad's going to happen. So I think that's what we were doing is we were figuring out this way of self-soothing of this way of process. We had created this tribalism. And honestly, I mean, look at the original Point Break movie and you'll understand that group and look at any group of climbers, boaters, mountain bikers, you know, the shared experience is what gets really bonds people together. This fear, this, this, we've come through this thing. And what's been notable is that in the shelter in place, some of the sports that I was doing and doing a lot of like outrigger canoeing, I paddled Molokai in the outrigger canoe. I paddled Molokai in a surf ski. Those things lost 100% of their interest for me. And I actually sold those boats. I don't even have an outrigger canoe anymore, you know, and I had great outrigger canoe, but I was like, Hey, this is the, and what I started doing again was kayaking scary stuff and challenging myself. again. So this is what I've been doing all summer is a lot more whitewater and feeling like, Oh, I know what this is. I can snap into this flow state, force myself into really difficult decisions. And I am probably a better kayaker than I ever was. In fact, I find myself now taking bigger risks because my skill is better, my fitness is better, my balance is better, my integration is better. And the things that I'm doing now in the kayak may have made my younger self blanch a little bit, right? And, and some of that is, you know, I've been kayaking for 35 years, comma, but there's some need there, as you're talking about, where I feel the struggle for right of passage that, or I'm defaulting to a behavior where I knew that I would have a certain outcome. And that outcome was, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit scared or very little bit focused. You know, here's an example. We were in Idaho on a family trip, on a road trip, and we went rafting, which turns out to be one of the few things that you can actually do safely, right, in COVID style. And um, my family's on the rafts, and I were paddling a section of the pet, which I had paddled 20 years ago. And it's only like class three, four. It's not even a big deal. It's just easy class three, four. And uh, a lot of little class four drops. But because I hadn't seen it in 20 years, I had no idea what it looked like. I had no idea what the rapids were. I didn't know where to go. And so I got to run that thing first time. And I got to go and, and because I wasn't following anyone, it was on me. So I got to show up and have to decide where I was going, what I was doing, what the river meant. And it was like I was, it was, I was a first time explorer, which leveled everything up and just reset the hook for me. Because, you know, one of the things for something like CrossFit, for example, when you are learning a new skill, you're just getting your ass whipped. You don't know what to expect. You don't know if you can do it. There's some uncertainty. And that drug effect of, I came through this, 
because, you know, jump into an advanced yoga class. And if you don't speak yoga, you will swim. And that, that fear, that uncertainty, I don't know where I go. I don't know if I can handle this. It's so hot. These people are just maniacs. That's the same thing I was experiencing all over again, you know, running this river for the first time again. And um, it really just, you know, reminded me about being in situations where I needed to be uncertain. You know, and now when we go to the gym, it's basically step aerobics with weights. You know how many wall balls you can do. You know how many double ones you can do. You know how long it's going to take you to row, row a thousand meters. There's just so much known in this physical practice. There's still fear and still pain and there's still shared experience, but you're not risking anything the way you did when you were a beginner. I wanted to take a quick moment and discuss an important mineral that many of us are missing from our daily diets. This mineral is magnesium. Magnesium is one of those supplements that uh, I don't buy a lot of supplements personally. I'm not a big supplement guy, but it's one of the only ones that I will actually purchase, which is a big deal. The reason for this is it's largely missing from American soil. And this has been something that's been happening ever since the 1950s. I think something, what is this statistic? Very high percentage of people. I think it's 80% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. And that is problematic because it is responsible for over 150 different important processes in your body, including fat metabolization, energy production, helps with going to sleep, helps with calming your nervous system, uh, helps with muscle repair, really big stuff. And um, for me, one of the most important things that I focus on is sleep. I really give many dams about how I sleep. It is a big deal. The difference between me sleeping well and not is like I'm a completely different person. And I would imagine as are you, and magnesium can help you with that. Uh, so I teamed up with Bio-Optimizers to get you guys some of the finest quality magnesium you can get. Why is it fine quality? Uh, one reason is it includes all seven forms of magnesium. So a lot of supplements that you get are only gonna have one or two or three or a few, whatever. This stuff covers all your bases all in one little capsule. And uh, I take it every day before bed and you can get yourself a 10% discount by going to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast that's m-a-g-b-r-e-a-k-t-h-r-o-u-g-h.com slash align podcast get yourself 10 percent off on that start it i think you guys are going to get a lot of value out of that especially if you are an exerciser or a mover and your muscles might be a little bit sore magnesium is going to be helpful stuff to help rest digest and repair those sweet muscles in your body and uh, not to mention the, the noggin in between your ears. So hope you guys dig that. Magbreakthrough.com slash line podcast. Start it. I know you're going to love it. And here we go. Back to the program with my man, Dr. Kelly Starrett. Yeah. Do you think you grew up with a single mom? Is that right? Oh, yeah. Single mom. Single working mom. Do you think that not having a, a father or I don't know if you had a father figure or did you have like any form of father figure around? Did that, no. that, do you think that? lended itself at all to the the fear seeking type sports that you were you were getting into or not really hard to say you know what i'll say is that uh, my mom's boyfriend was a mountain guide in in the mountains of germany right yeah. and you know adventure was a rite of passage everyone skied everyone hiked everyone everyone climbed everyone kayaked and uh i think you know what i can say is i didn't have guideposts about who I was in the world, how I should be in the world, um, necessarily as a man. So what I can tell you though, is because I fell into these groups, some of that was taken care of for me. I didn't have to, you know, have this, um, sort of very formalized, rigid, routinized process. You know, I was a boy scout in Germany, which was scouting in Europe is very different than scouting here. In Europe, every girl, their girls and Boy Scouts are integrated. These jamborees, I mean, we slept in like minor, snow caves. It was just, we did a bunch of super gnarly stuff. And um, we did a, there was a bunch of rites of passage built into that. In retrospect, I can see how that wildness and that tribalism with, with that was constrained or at least fostered was really important to me in my development. At the same time, when we, what we began was that we began to create our own tribal rituals, our own rites as young men out in the woods, taking risks right out on the rivers. Yeah. I mean, we would, we would be like, you know, I think we chose the wrong sport. Like 
there's no one here. There are no beautiful girls here. Like there's no one to see us. Like, does anyone care that we did this? And so it was really this intense, innate self-satisfaction. You know, sometimes we would come back after running some rivers and show people photos. And they're like, was that hard? We're like, Oh my God, that was so hard. Like, you can't tell. Like we almost died there. Like (laughs) we were so gripped and like the photo doesn't capture it, you know? So, you know, you had to come to really believe that, like, how did that feel? You know, what's interesting is, you know, those definitely are self reinforcing behaviors a little bit. And so to the extent now, what we're seeing is, you know, Netflix is a poor surrogate for adventure, you know, Um, it's not, you know, there's a great documentary on HBO or something right now called Action Park, right? Class Action Park. I don't know if you've seen this. No. So Action Park was a, in New Jersey, was this crazy water park where people died and got really hurt, but it was wild. And the things like you could do a 20 foot cliff jump and there was no one there to tell you, don't jump on the person underneath. And they had loop-de-loops and they had a, a, a ride there called the Colorado River, which was scary and legit and had huge waterfalls and tubes. Like it's terrifying. If you watch this thing and kids flock to it and kids like would go down the, the, the Alpine slide and have huge road rashes and people die. I mean, it was really like, it was out of control and unsafe comma. What was it that drove people to that experience? Yeah. You know, and it's the experience of being alive and the experience of, of, of risking something and in that moment. And I think that's really the surrogate is that, man, I, I had the, the mountains of Germany and then the rivers and the mountains of Colorado. These kids had a water park that could kill them in New Jersey. Same, same. Yeah. I think it's, it's ironic that we, it seems like at least in like the United States um, and much of Western culture, we go out of our way to protect ourselves, protect children and kind of create this insulated like nerf reality that we occupy. And then what that ends up doing ironically is actually it's the most dangerous thing you can do to a young person because they don't learn how to be in their bodies. You know, it's like, it's such a fascinating thing. It's, I feel like the whole world's paradoxical these days, (laughs) maybe for everybody, I'm noticing it. Well, I think what's interesting then is the next follow-up question to that statement is, well, okay, so what, how do you shape the environment? So what is that about? So one of the things that we value is we do a ton of river trips with our kids where, you know, we're a self-sufficient, you know, it's a four or five day river trip. You know, you've got to pack, run, rig, camp, cook, clean, be uncomfortable, sleep on weird places. You know, you're, when we're on the river, no one sleeps great because your brain is like weird environment. I got to do this tomorrow. You know, Mm -hmm. this summer, my daughter, Georgia, who's now 15, there's been a couple of really interesting things for her because, you know, classic Northern California Marin kid, right. Plays volleyball, then plays water polo and she goes to school and she gets good grades. And, you know, and, and frankly, for a moment, it was a little bit basic, you know, like, you know, hanging out in the summer and just, you know, can't be our friend or friends or go to, go to a junior Olympics water polo. So, you know, she's watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy and Snapchatting her friends, you know, and I, I can't blame her because if those were my two vices and the only thing I had accessible to me, I would, I would milk them. Right. So all of a sudden though, when we got back from Thailand, at Christmas, Georgia came back and said, Hey, I think I want to fight Muay Thai. And I was like, fantastic. Oh. You know, and that's as a dad, I'm like, well, how much money can I throw at that? You know, and we have an incredible instructor locally. And there was a moment where he couldn't go in his gym and Georgia didn't fight. And then we eventually said, you know, once again, Hey, we're going to have to take this risk with this person that we trust. And it feels like a family member because the downside to my daughter is too strong. Yeah. And so it's one person at a time. They're doing social distance. They're being, being, you know, there's a lot of ventilation and, you know, Georgia's fighting Muay Thai and being scared and having, and like, man, you want to see a 15 year old kid who's like the thing she's living for is, is fighting Muay Thai and Thai kickboxing for those people. And, you know, subsequently also she got to a place in her own river running where she started running the local rivers, the little class three, easy four rivers in an inflatable kayak herself and to watch her go through all the stages of fear. I don't know if I can do this. I'm scared. Uh, I shredded that. You see my line, my hair is dry. You know, it's that same thing over and over again, where we have to make the environment sufficiently difficult and then overcome that, that we can take this next risk behavior. And, you know, a lot of people ask Juliet and I, you know, why is it that you guys are comfortable with so much risk in your life, working for yourselves and doing things? And I'm like, well, because we've been practicing those behaviors physically for a long time. And if you yeah. look then at, 
you know, my do- my youngest daughter riverboards. So she's on a basically huge, like a, like a boogie board on steroids with fins. And then she swims the whole river with another friend and they, they boogie board the same thing. I'm kayaking right there on the, the river. And so there's my little 12 year old kicking through and just gutting these gigantic holes in rapids. And, you know, I, you can start to see those behaviors. So someone like Erwan LaCour in his move net, you know, one of the things that you see through this play piece, which is so crucial to understand why, you know, when I ask my kids to go front squat with me, they're like, that sucks. Like, I'm not into that, dad. But if it's a play, if it's, if it's social, right, then suddenly we can bury those behaviors and bury those lessons in the context of this other thing. And, you know, we ha- are not doing a good job. Erwan LaCour, his moving at gym for kids, it's a lot of balance beams. It's a lot of climbing. It's a lot of safe places where I can feel afraid and still have to you know, negotiate on something that, you know, a beam that's four feet off the ground. You know, yeah. if I fall, nothing's going to happen. My perception of the fear is the whole thing. And but we're just need, not very good at practicing that. You need that, that slow, gradual pushing of the boundaries, like exposure therapy. Slowly the yeah. bubble gets bigger and bigger. And it's, yes, not, yes, it's yes. not that you're more dangerous. You actually become more responsible. You know, and, it, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting with, with parenting, which I don't know anything about because I'm not a parent, but from what I've heard from other parents, a common thing is for, you know, around like teenage realm for a, a child to start to create distance with their parents, mm-hmm. you know, and then sometimes there's like, you hear the kid running like, I hate you, mom, you know, and all that stuff. And it's like, it's like, okay, I know you don't actually hate me, but, but what could subconsciously be happening there is they're preparing to leave the nest. You know, so they're, they're, they're aware that this isn't like a full life ticket. It's like, okay, it's like coming up four years. I got to get out of here. Right. You know, how do I start to kind of slowly open that up? And, and the thing that I think is, is perhaps interesting in relation to like someone that is seeking really dangerous type behaviors, I think perhaps there could be some type of subconscious urge for a person that hasn't grown up in a place where they did slowly push those boundaries to have this subconscious urge to be like, I need to prepare myself for danger. And I've lived in this Nerf world that I, I, I feel almost defenseless, even though it seems like I have everything at a, at a more maybe like a mammalian hunter-gatherer ancestral level, I feel kind of unequipped. And so then I jump the gap into something that actually is quite dangerous. I'm just kind of, you know, making shit up, but I wonder if there's any. No, well, I, what's interesting is, um, you know, maybe we're talking about just exposure to being uncomfortable. So, you know, yeah. why is it that the sauna and the ice has found its niche again, right? Because you're going to get too hot in the sauna and not be able to take it. And then you get yeah. in the ice and it hurts too bad. And you think you need to die and you need to get out. And, you know, the, we're looking for input like kids. Let's talk about this. The, if you see, watch around little kids, they are jumping off everything because they're actually looking for input. They're needing that yeah. input. And we used to think, oh, it's the frontal brain, you know, frontal cortex isn't developed, uh, poor decision making. It's not what it is. The brain is looking for novel exposure, novel novelty seeking as a way of getting input into the body looking for input. Yeah. So, you know, apply that now to, you know, my kid, my friends, you know, who are, they have kids who are seniors in college. Last year of college not going to happen remotely. Those kids who are the greatest, greatest young men ever become physical pieces of shit to their parents <laughs> yeah. because they're trapped and they don't have agency and yeah. they're, they've lost their, their independence and freedom. They, they don't have any control over their space. And you know, that, that helplessness is really difficult. And unless we can put that uncertainty, because look, it would be great if we all could have wilderness exposure and do all the things and, jump our mountain bikes, but that this just doesn't scale, right? So at some level, we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye on the fact that like, where does rubber hit the road? You know, you and I are like, we're such mountain men that like, we've neither of a shape today and we're sitting on the ground. And that's basically <laughs> like, okay, okay. That's pretty weak sauce, but that's, that's where we are right now. But where do we put those feelings then? And more importantly, how do those feelings help us and, and how do we integrate that into whole, where the whole thing is hidden from us? You know, I think that's really one of the things that I love about your book is that there's so much, you are very meta about seeing the behaviors that make us human and trying to wrap those things into actions that are v- very routinized or superficial on the surface, but are so deep and ingrained into our DNA on the other side. And we're definitely going to come more and more of this 
as we become more and more modern. I think if you read Homo Deus by, you know, Yuval Harari, you're going to see that we're going to be 110 years old. And, you know, what does that look like? And what does that feel like? And what kind of life do we want to have for the back half of the next 50 or 60 years, 70 years, if you're a young person listening to this? And that's a question we we need to really start, you know, asking, you know, um, the Tour de France is going on right now. And, you know, I have a really complicated relationship with professional sport. I work in a lot of professional sport, more than people realize. And I work with a lot of athletes who have been treated like chattel in professional sport, that they're broken, they're cast aside, that's the end. And if you don't believe me, go ahead and watch The Weight of Gold, a little documentary on HBO about a bunch of gold medalists and sort of the cost of that athletic experience that we fetishize and romanticize until they're no longer used to it. So A, my relationship with professional sports is complicated because I really love sports. I love what's possible for the body, but it comes at a cost that we're always trying to mitigate. But secondarily, suddenly you see that that sport is a chance for us to be outside our bodies, to live vicariously, to be inspired, to unite as a tribe and community. That's why these things are going on. That's why the NBA happened in a bubble. That's why, I mean, it's because some of these things are tribal rituals, right? And what's interesting right now is to see that that need for this kind of common shared experience. And, you know, we're going to have to have a real, real sort of reckoning about what does it mean? So one of the interesting phenomena in our neighborhood, I live in this, it's always felt like the 1950s where I live. I live in this, uh, we live in San Rafael, just north of the city of San Francisco. And there's a one mile kind of loop, but there's an 800 meter stretch on this loop where there are now, you know, we have a meatloaf competition. You know, this is the street where everyone um, comes for Halloween. We have a DJ in our yard, like 3000 people will show up on our street for Halloween. And um, people know each other's names and they get together and, and, you know, someone there's a, in the driveway every Friday, you know, people have a happy hour. And what's interesting is that that has intensified during all this, this neighborhood now is more community driven and aware and we know all the kids and, you know, like kids are running in the street, like packs. And, and I'm pleased to see this in my neighborhood where people said, okay, in this Narnia, sub-Narnia level thing that we're living in right now, this is more important. And I've seen people develop relationships with their neighbors, even that were, they had previously, you know, were, you know, deep, steeped in animosity. And that's because... I think fundamentally these, there are these principles and algorithms that drive us as humans. And it's been good to see some of those things sort of manifest in po- more positive ways. Yeah. I really greatly appreciate you integrating the whole mind body conversation and, and it goes so much beyond just physicality. You know, and it, I think it's interesting, like how does a person tap into that, that joie de vivre in order to, get the hell up off of their couch and go do a thing. Like we're so focused on the thing. If you do the thing, then everything will be okay. But I feel like there's a little bit of like a gap or a bridge that needs to be gapped for so many people. Cause they're like, cool. I understand. I have all of the information that I could ever possibly, it's literally in my pocket, you know, but from the way that the mold has kind of perhaps we could blame it on the mold. I think that'd be a likely place to, to put blame. It's kind of formed our bodies into a place of, kind of maybe feeling a little bit more collapsed or maybe feeling a little bit more chronically stressed perhaps, or maybe feeling a little bit more like any of those things. So it's like, it seems to me that by integrating some really small little variable changes into your life, you can start to gain momentum and slowly build that you're pushing the ball enough that it starts to roll by itself. And you naturally want to do those things that you've already known about your whole life. But it's like, is there any small, subtle, little, you know, like dynamic systems theory that you say like constraints you could add into your life to, to increase the whole, you know, optimal living, whatever. Is there any little, little things you can add into your life that make a big difference? You know, there's a million little things and I would really put people at your book. You know, you did such a good job sort of highlighting some of the environmental lifestyle stuff there. You know, the thing I think is, is, and this is what's really important around this conversation because, you know, sleep, walk, you know, have sex, be connected, you know, be intimate, you know, make eye contact, be a human being, breathe a little bit. All of those things are, you know, that's the core. Mm -hmm. But what I think I want people to appreciate out of this, and I'm not trying to dodge the question, but just 
you know, I think it's a more interesting piece is, is that you can appreciate how interconnected and tightly coupled these behaviors are. You know, if you stay up all night because you're depressed watching Netflix or binging, then you're not going to get very much sleep. And then you wake up in the morning and you're super tired and you're kind of groggy. So you have a bunch of coffee and at four o'clock, you have another coffee. And then if you have caffeine after four, it doesn't matter who you are. Like it's really difficult to, it'll affect the quality of your sleep. And then to hit the brakes, you have a, a drink or two because it's social and that's what people are doing and it makes you feel better in the moment, but that disrupts your sleep. So now you're dehydrated and tired and caffeinated and alcoholed. So you sleep a little bit worse. And then you wake up in the morning and you feel terrible again and you get caught in this loop of, you know, depressant stimulant cycling that you're not even aware of. And it's really, again, something that you just brought out, uh, you know, righteously is that we are all products of a system and we're all products of an environment. And so, you know, part of this is not always that, you know, take some Herculean and Rand, you know, fountainhead kind of self-resolve heroic effort. Like you're a product of the environment and the system of the people around you. And, and some of that is habit and process, you know? And so like, if we're going boating, you go boating, you know, if you're, we're mountain biking, you're going mountain biking with us. And so once again, that first thing where we said that the, the brain is not an isolated organ, yeah. you know, is, is right now it's difficult to, to have all those things dialed and appreciate that the whole thing affects the whole other thing. And, you know, we say there's a great book that uh, I highly recommend for people to read who are, interested in this thing called normal accidents by Charles Perrow and normal accident theory is basically looking at complex systems and trying to appreciate that in that complex system processes are so tightly coupled, but hidden from us that they may not express themselves unless there's enough time in the system present. So that shorthand for what looks like a, a freak accident or an outlier is just a normal expression of the system. If you give the system enough time to work. Okay. And what that means is right now we've just added a whole bunch of stress to the system and we're really seeing what the cracks were. And suddenly we've accelerated some of the timing and some of the processes that maybe were hidden from us before and would have taken another decade for those poor behaviors to pop out, AKA hiccups for 11 days. Right? So What's, what's interesting about normal accident theory is that we, be, we begin to look at stresses in the system, not as outliers or one-offs, but as completely normal. And that's the normal accident, that it's, it's actually a part of the process. It's a feature of the process, which means we can then go back and say, what one thing or two things am I going to just do better today? And I think, you know, if I read your book and didn't know better, I would make this list and I start checking things off and I'd be like, I'm a failure. I only, I only did six of the 19 things that, you know, Aaron said I should do. <laughs> and uh, instead of appreciating that those two or three things that you took a crack at today yeah. impacted 19 different things, just in subtly different ways that you, that were hidden from your consciousness or your awareness or, or your, or your physical practice. Yeah. And when, when people begin to do that and I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about behavior change as you do, you know, part of what we have seen, for example, in nutrition is that it's a lot easier to add things into people's diets than to take things out from people's diets. So if I want you to eat a better diet, first thing I'm going to do is say, Hey, I just need you to add in. Don't worry about how much Coke and alcohol you're drinking. Just, I just need you to drink three glasses of water today. Right. And we were like, well, I can do that. And then what we see is that there's suddenly less, we've, we've constrained a behavior by adding pressure to it. So if I'm, if I want you to eat fewer cookies and less crap, and I say, Hey, I, I want you to eat 500 grams of fruits today or fruits and vegetables, your choice, just 500 grams. You can measure that out. Then all of a sudden I guarantee you'll be so full from eating that, that you won't be able to eat the second serving of pasta or toast, you know, and as soon as that's 800 grams, suddenly, you know, if you get a dog, you have to walk the dog. You know, that's an old John Berardi trick, you know, where he's like, oh, you want to lose weight? Get a dog. And it was like, you know, what do I do next? He's like, okay, now I need you to drink a glass of water a day. And so like eat, drinking a glass of water a day and walking the dog transformed this guy's life, you know, and, and that was because suddenly he was moving and suddenly because he, you know, was actually moving his aquarium around a little bit. So that's really what I want people to appreciate in terms of don't worry about pulling things out that you think are bad, right? Those are your coping mechanisms or habits 
if we can begin to add other aspects of other behaviors in, they will supplant less effective behaviors and you'll begin to feel better, which is, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. That's great. Thanks so much, man. We got to, it's uh, the end of the hour. I appreciate you making time to do this. In relation to Charles Perro normal accident stuff, I think it's a really great way to perceive any kind of happening that takes place in your life, whether it's maybe you know, you have a little bit of extra weight on your belly, or maybe there's diabetes happening, or maybe you know you fell and pulled something, or you picked up a heavy pillow or whatever it was and threw your back out. Like all of those things were, were parts that you've been slowly aggregating all the variables to create that perfect equation right there. And it wasn't like the universe is against you. It's that you've actually been responsible. You're empowered in how you draw out this equation and literally every moment yes. throughout the day, it's like, it's an opportunity to start to, you know, do math. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's really right. And, um, you know, that, that's a really clever way of looking at these problems. Cause I think that's the issue for us is that suddenly we just, I'm middle-aged and I don't feel very good and I'm super stiff and, you know, I've pulled my calf and now I move less and, you know, we're like, well, what happened? I don't, I don't know. I just woke up like this. And is that really the truth? You know, did you just wake up like this? Yeah. And with the idea that, you know, uh, we want to shift blame. It's not your fault, but it is in your control. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think what we have done is, for example, you know, lastly is that if we're, you know, some really good research just came out that really showed that being overweight or obese is the common factor to your success in dealing with COVID. And that's pressure on your organs. That's chronic systemic, systemic inflammation. And 78% of the people were hospitalized. And this is not, this is not, I mean, this is good science and good research. Yeah. It's not biased. And you know, all the, all you people out there, you can just go ahead and put up your own research around there to, to supplant this. But what we see then is, wow, we're not going to be able to talk about robust getting people less obese until we talk about, you know, the stresses in their life. Right. Which means that, you know, some of the, the answers to the conversations are more nuanced than, well, why did you drink that Coke? Well, it's not really, that's it, you know, because they sell Coke at my school. And I don't know if you know, but Coke is highly addictive, like porn and, uh, you know, and, and drugs. And so suddenly, you know, I think when we begin to sort of be, be a little bit more dispassionate, and rational, then we can start to have a little bit more nuance and, and complicated conversations around what seem to be really intractable problems. You know, we're, we can't talk about the fact that, you know, if you're a black woman, your chances of being diabetic are two out of three versus everyone else is one out of four. When you and I went to high school, one in 4,000. But we can't talk about that unless we talk about racism, right? Unless we talk about some of these other aspects. So, you know, if you can't talk about a food desert, how can you talk about the fact that McDonald's is the only food choice? You know, so maybe it's a little bit more nuanced than we think, but the outcomes are normal accidents. Yeah, I love it. Where should people go from here? Where do people, I know you have a, a program that's, what's, what's the best place to point people? We are at thereadystate.com. And if you want to see how I think around physical practice, go to the Instagram, go to the YouTubes. You can see, you know, I just put up a lot of content. This week actually is the 10-year anniversary when we started putting up content on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I, filmed, I filmed my crotch for 10 minutes 10 years ago in the first 10-minute squat test, the first of many beatdowns. And um, that, that all happened 10 years ago. So we use those things as like teaching adjuncts, you know, as workbooks and just to show our work. And then on the site – you know, we really want to help people be able to come in and either make themselves feel better by helping manage their own pain, by restoring their position, or by downregulating or enhancing their athletic recovery. So there's kind of those three buckets. And, you know, we're about to start on September 14th. If you hear this, it won't be too late. But, uh, you know, we're about to start another 14-day challenge. We have a bunch of these 14-day kind of challenges in the site that you can have access to where, you know, we just take you on a little journey, a little short, you know, let's, let's spin up this one piece of your, of your physiology and so working on foot health and balance and, and ankle range of motion, this next one. And, um, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, we have really good tools, but this is the age of synthesis. And if we can't figure out how to put these tools into your life and help you work it into your crazy, busy daily life, then it's all bullshit. Once again, thank you so much. You've been a major anchor 
in my thinking process and just the way that I approach. Um, like a broken anchor, like dragging you down, like an No, honestly, like I, so I really enjoy looking, like I listen to a lot of like Ram Dass and Alan Watts and, you know, just anybody that's talking about kind of stony philosophical type things. And I try to integrate that into the, to approach with, you know, your relationship with your body. And then sometimes I think I can start to veer a little bit overly meta kind of tinfoil hat type direction. And then I'll just, dial back into some Kelly Starrett <laughs> and I feel like, like it's a nice bounce. So you're like the other side of my, my scale that kind of like puts me back into homeostasis. I, I greatly appreciate, I greatly appreciate you. <laughs> like my friends, always a pleasure to spend an hour with you. All right. See you brother. That was great. Thank you, brother. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, share it on the Instagram. Share some segment that you especially enjoyed or it could just be the picture of it or whatever. Uh, if you share a segment, I'm more likely to, to reshare it, to be honest. Uh, you can share that with uh, or tag Align Podcast, me on the Instagram, or you could also tag The Ready State, which is Dr. Kelly's page. And thank you so much for reviews on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to this. Those are immensely meaningful to me. I read all of them and uh, it just it helps the algorithms know people are listening to this. It helps share it and spread it around. And uh, if you feel like these conversations are meaningful for the world, and once again, thank you guys so much for reviews on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to this thing. And uh, that is lets the algorithmic gods of the internet know that people are digging this stuff and helps boost it out to other people. Thanks for grabbing the Eli Method book. If you want to learn more about these topics, Kelly did a really beautiful forward for the book. And so I recommend that. Just the forward in of itself is, is worth reading. Kelly is one to incorporate, as you've heard, really important information into everything that he says. So just the forward alone is filled with many a valuable tidbit. So I hope you guys devour that. And once again, I so greatly appreciate you tuning in, appreciate you sharing this, and uh, look forward to speaking into your ear canals next week.